The following message is from the 2019 IBCD Training Institute, Identity Crisis. Well, it is a joy to be with you here this morning uh, when, when Bob and Anne-Marie and Jim were looking at the list of speakers and then looking at the list of topics. They somehow lined my name up with this topic. So <clears throat> I don't exactly know what they were intending with that, but we're going to talk about sin this morning. We're not going to talk about sin just generically, though. Remember, the theme of this conference is identity, which is another way of saying self-perception, what we believe about ourselves, how we measure ourselves, what we think about ourselves. That's our identity. And so we're going to think about our self-perception as sinners in particular. And folks, Dee did a good job last night of just recognizing, I want to say a couple introductory comments about identity in general that kind of uh, expand on what Dee started last night. Identity is complex, okay? And when we're, we're talking about a sensitive topic like seeing ourselves as sinners, we have to start out by recognizing the complexity of identity. Let me, let me illustrate this maybe with a thought experiment. Let's say you're a parent and your kid comes home from school and he tells you about how a bigger kid from the grade above him shows up every day at the cafeteria, shoves him into a corner that nobody else can see and takes money from him every single day. And you ask your child, well, why does he pick on you and not other kids? Why, why is he singling you out? And your child says... Well, I'm the smallest kid in the class, and so he bullies me. Your, your child just made a statement about himself or herself. <clears throat> and his self-evaluation in that moment and about that situation is based on his size. So for him, size is the determining factor of the bullying action of somebody else, okay? So... Here's, here's the thing. He might be correct and accurate in his self-perception about his size, right? If he's really small, are you as a parent going to even waste time trying to convince him that he's huge? You're not small. Look how big you are. You could crush anybody that you... Yeah, that's, that would just be failed logic, right? So he's accurate in his sense of his size, but here's the problem. The meaning that he's attributing to his size is incorrect, Right? So he thinks that size, he's, 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 he's attaching a meaning to that that is incorrect. Let me say this a different way. He's taking one single perspective of himself, and he's acting like that's the full description of how this situation came about. Does that make sense? So there are other things that are true about your son or your daughter there besides how big or small they are, right? There's lots of other ways that you could describe him. There's lots of other perspectives you could do. So what would you say in response as a parent when he, when he says that to you? How do you want your child to perceive himself in relation to this situation? So you might say something like, yes, you're small, but you could fill that in in a countless different ways, couldn't you? Yes, you're small, but you have the capability of standing up. So you're adding, you're adding a layer of perspective to his identity there. You're identifying him according to his responsibility or maybe his courage or maybe his capacities you're trying to stir in him that he doesn't realize that he has. So yes, you're small, but you can stand up. But maybe you might not say that. Maybe you'd say, yes, you're small, but darn it, you're a Pierre. You're a member of this family. And by that, what do you mean, really? Are you saying he's loved and valued? Or are you saying you got to stand up for the family reign and not make us look bad? <laughs> Hopefully you're not saying that, by the way. Yes, you're small, but maybe you say something like, but, but, but you're, you're innocent. You, you, don't, you don't deserve to get beat up. And even there, there's complexity, right? Because how do you define innocence? Do you want him to perceive himself as innocent in some pure universal sense? where he's never done anything wrong. Is that what you mean in that moment? No. You mean that in regards to this situation, he didn't do anything to warrant the bully's behavior against him. That's what you mean by innocent. Or maybe you say, 
uh, you're, you're a victim in this situation. How do you define it? What do you mean in that moment? Do you mean that he's a helpless receiver that's broken as a person, as a state of being for him? Some universal sense of victimhood? Or do you mean that in this situation he's being unjustly harmed, right? In that sense, do you mean victim? Now let me add a layer of complexity that starts to touch on our topic here. Would you say to your son, you're a sinner in that moment? Do you want your son to perceive himself as a sinner? That's meant to be hard to answer in the way I posed it. Because in a sense, yes, you want him to know that he is in need of the grace of Jesus Christ, don't you? But in another sense, no, in, in, in the sense that you don't want to imply in that moment that his status as sinner is what makes him deserve the bullying from somebody else. Does that make sense to you? This is very complex. So let me ask you a question that might get us a step closer to clarity. Can your son simultaneously be innocent regarding the situation a victim in relation to that bully and a sinner in need of the grace of Jesus Christ. And therein lies the complexity of how we're thinking about identity, right? How would you answer that question? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Yes or no? I hope you would answer yes. I hope you would answer yes on that. Because if you're counseling people, You have to be able to understand that their identity, their self-perception can have a number of different angles that we can appropriately look and consider someone. So why am I introducing this talk on the self-perception of sinfulness in this particular way? Because human identity, friends, we've got to lay this out carefully in the introduction. It's complex and it's multi-layered. If we try to oversimplify it, we're in danger, okay? If we try to oversimplify it, we're in danger. And here's what I mean by oversimplify it. What I mean is that oversimplifying is just simply taking one perspective of yourself and treating it as the only perspective on yourself. Does that make sense? One perspective of yourself and treating it as the only perspective on yourself. And here's where it's super tricky. You could even have a biblical perspective of yourself, but do you realize that the Bible gives you itself, it provides you lots of different angles and perspectives of you. That's reflected actually in the makeup of this conference, right? So we just heard I am chosen last night. We're hearing I am sinner right now. You're gonna hear I'm united to Christ, I'm adopted, I'm sanctified. You're going to hear a number of other things. I'm glorified. I will be glorified. Those are wonderful perspectives. What I'm trying to explain to you is our perspective of ourselves has to be as complex and multi-perspectival, if you will, multi-layered as the Bible, as the Bible's perspective of us is. So My goal this morning is I'm going to demonstrate, I'm about to do this, okay? So I'm still introducing. I like to introduce quite a bit, okay? And then I move quickly through my outline, so don't worry, okay? I'm about to demonstrate from Scripture that that Scripture talks about a healthy self-perception requiring seeing us as sinners. You have to see yourself as a sinner if you're going to be healthy, okay? I'm actually going to demonstrate that. But before I do that, I just really want to make sure that you're not hearing from me this morning that I'm trying to tell you that's the exclusive category you should understand yourself through. That's the only category. You are only a sinner. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you should only see yourself as a sinner because you're more than a sinner in God's eyes. And God's perspective, God's multi-angled perspective is the one that counts So as I talk about you seeing yourself as a sinner this morning, I don't want you to think for one moment that I want you to see yourself as merely a sinner. 
this can take you to a very dark place. And I've seen Satan, who's called what? The accuser, take people there and grind them into the ground. And, I, and, and if you're particularly prone to that this morning, dear friends, you just have to hear this caveat. You're more than a sinner, okay? What you're about to hear, you're more than a sinner. I've noticed that people who've been traumatized in particular ways who've been harmed and abused are particularly uh, uh, in danger of hearing that they're a sinner and kind of going into a downward spiral because, there's, because a lot of them carry around this aching suspicion that they did something that warranted the abuse done against them. So if you're in that category, friends, please hear, please hear me this morning. Please hear me this morning. Jesus is righteous on your behalf, okay? And the other, the other sort of category I've noticed of people that get into downward spirals are those who I'd say may have obsessive tendencies in their conscience. They're, they're to use a Puritan phraseology, they're, they're sort of over-scrupulous, okay? They, they, they think about how displeasing they are to God all the time. If you, if you kind of tend towards that, you just need to hear me say this morning, friends, guess what? It's Jesus' job to be righteous, not yours. It's your job to trust his righteousness. And as we're going to talk about in our sanctification talk, Deepak and I, we cooperate with that righteousness, but it's Jesus' job to make you righteous before the Father. You can't do it, okay? So let's rest in that. Let's rest in that as we now sort of make our way towards the main point this morning. So I'm about to argue that Viewing yourself as a sinner is a necessary part of how we have to perceive ourselves if we're going to think rightly about ourselves. A person who sees himself as sinful is actually able to morally evaluate what happens inside him and what happens outside him. That is so necessary to being a functional, righteous, complete person. Put it negatively, a person who doesn't perceive his own sinfulness is going to turn into a monster. He's going to turn into some warped and diminished version of himself because he has no external reference point to evaluate that what's going on inside is not good. Folks, this flies in the face of what we are told today in our culture and what most uh, uh, secular psychotherapeutic models are built upon. I could go to the old tired whipping boy of the self-esteem ideology that largely has kind of run its course and we see that it creates a generation of people who are obsessed with themselves and less happy than people who were not obsessed with themselves, okay? But maybe I should also mention that this is against the current ideology that's much more popular right now, this ideology of authenticity, okay? That, that vaguely defined emphasis on being mindful of your inner experience and then acting consistently with that inner experience. That's the definition of, of authenticity around us. If I'm authentic out externally to who I am internally, I'm a healthy person. So if I'm drawn towards a certain lifestyle or if I'm drawn to relating to certain people sexually in certain ways, then I just need to live consistently with this, find a way to live consistently without harming other people, and that is seen as morally good. But the Bible doesn't talk that way. The Bible insists that we have to be able to look inside ourselves and, and, and evaluate it as wrong. There is, there is wrong that occurs within us, and therefore wrong that is expressed outwardly. By the way, this is, this is, there's nothing new in terms of church history here, right? We, 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 church history is one long string of rediscoveries that life is found when we recognize and are honest about the death that lives inside us, okay? Augustine's confessions, Luther's desperate pursuit of freedom of, of his will, he didn't have it, Calvin's straight talk about human depravity, Kierkegaard's woeful gaze at the, at the undercurrents of human motivation. We go on to, John, to, 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 
to, to Owens, to Edwards, to all, we could throw out a bunch of names. And, and church history is full of people that didn't, they weren't captured by the same things that we're captured by in our culture, okay? So that was a really long introduction and you're really nervous about the outline in front of you. I don't want you to be nervous, okay? Because what I'm going to do is the opposite of what D did last night. He sort of moved us quickly through the first points and then camped in the last ones. I'm camping at the beginning and then we'll move quickly through the remaining ones. I always want to leave you with more material than we can cover in an hour. So, our main point this morning. An essential element of a biblical view of self is this. I am not good like God as I ought to be. On my own, I neither see the world rightly nor act rightly in it. Okay? So I worded this, this main point really carefully. I actually tried to not use the word sin because I didn't want to use the word we're defining to, in the definition. And to give you sort of a, relational, a, a relationally vibrant picture of what sin actually is. It is the failure to be like the God you were created to be like. That God is righteous. And I've, I've found in counseling that people are really, they're, they're, they're actually quite at ease admitting that they're sinners. But when you start to put meat and bones on what their, that sin actually is, that they are acting not like God here. They are acting like someone who does not know God. That's when they start getting offended. And that's actually a sign that maybe they're starting to realize what's been going on inside them. You define it, sin is defined relationally in scripture, our relationship with God. So furthermore, it helps people see that sin is more broadly, it's more broad than, than merely a set of distinct external actions like stealing or hitting or cursing. These things are sins, okay? But scripture presents this in a far more dynamic way, a far more, a far more internal way. In my, in my classes at Southern Seminary, I'll occasionally do this, this thought experiment with my classes. I'll ask them, okay, guys, I want to see a show of hands here. Let's just put everything out on the line. I want to know how long you can go without sinning, okay? Can anybody here go a week without sinning? No hands go up. Can anyone here go a day without sinning? No hands go up even still, which is a huge comfort to me. Okay, there's at least some self-awareness going on there. Can anyone go a morning without sinning? I see a couple hands go up in the back. Can anyone go one hour without sinning? Bunch more hands go up, okay? They're like, when I'm sleeping, yeah, that's true, okay? I'm like, how about one minute? Then basically everybody raises their hand. I can go one minute without sinning. And then I say to them, you actually can't go one nanosecond without sinning. Hold, hear me out. If we understand sin not just as distinct external action, you can't avoid that for at least a few hours, I hope, okay? But if we understand sin in the way that we're talking about here, that it, it's not seeing the world rightly. It's not seeing the world as God sees it. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's something wrong with, with who I am as well as what I do. Does that make sense? So again, I hope, I, I'm not trying to make us like feel awful every minute. And by the way, the solution is not a constant stream of Lord, I'm sorry, 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 I'm sorry. It doesn't work that way. You literally could not function as a human being that way. That's not the solution. The solution is, we're gonna get to, is just the, the humble recognition of my need, my, my minute by minute need for Jesus and his righteousness. So, let's, look, let's start to move through these subpoints here. I'm not like God in the way I first see the world. My sin affects my perception of everything, okay? Turn to Genesis three with me. I wanna look at the original sin event. Just, we're not gonna look at the whole thing. There's tons of theology we can unpack. I just want to, I want to consider what, what I think the Bible talks about it, of sin affecting our perception. That means my understanding of the situation around me. That 
Guys, these are fighting words, by the way. I'm telling you right now that you don't see the world accurately, and neither do I, entirely. Sin has corrupted our ability to do this, okay? So I just want to look actually at verse 7 and 8, after the sin already occurred, okay? Then the eyes of both, Adam and Eve, were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Pay attention closely to that language. You just had the entire world created in two chapters, and now chapter three zooms in on this one episode, okay? and describes it in, in, in specific detail. And it says, the eyes of both were opened. What's that a statement of? Was that a, is that a literal statement? Did they have their eyes closed when they were eating the fruit? Here, Eve, just give me the fruit. Yeah, is this it, this one? Okay. It, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor of perception. The way they understood. The way, what they believed. How they interpreted their world. Their eyes were opened. What it means is that they understood the same situation in a totally different way now. They knew they were naked before, or naked if you're from the South, okay? (laughs) I'm, 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 I'm in Louisville, Kentucky, so I'm like right on the border of North and South. I was raised in Cleveland, Ohio, and I heard the word naked for the first time when I was there. I was like, what does that mean? I don't... That some variety of nakedness. <laughs> but my point is, they weren't dumb. They knew they didn't have clothes on before, but now they understood that fact in a different way. Does that make sense? They perceived in different ways. So, same language, they, the eyes were open, and they knew, okay? They knew. That, that means this new knowledge was added to their perspective. What did they just gain a knowledge of that they didn't have a knowledge of before? Think about the name of the tree, okay? Evil, right? Good and evil, the, the, the difference. They'd taken it on. So they experienced for themselves this new action that was contrary to God's word. They'd never experienced that before. They'd always acted in line with God's will. But this new experience gave them a new perspective on this same reality of their nakedness. And then when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, folks, hearing, they they knew what that sound meant. They interpreted it, okay? Rustling, rustling, that's cool to think about. Like, how did God walk around? I don't know. But they heard the rustling. They heard the sound of him coming. And prior to that, their interpretation of that filled them with delight. That was the best part of their day was these evening walks with God. But, But what was their experience now? They understood it in an entirely different way, didn't they? So they heard the sound, they perceived it differently, not as delight, but all of a sudden it's dread. And we know that because they hightailed it. They they, they fled, they hid from God. Friends, the biggest problem of self is the inability to see God for who he truly is. That's the biggest problem with your self-identity is that you don't see God for who he truly is. Your sin, our sin, has corrupted our ability to see God rightly. And it reaps havoc on everything else. It reaps havoc on everything else. You know, it's hard to admit, just, just I'm gonna have this running example in these first couple points here. It's hard to admit that you don't see everything rightly. Take for example, I'm sure most of you in here have done marriage counseling. Marriage counseling is harder than individual counseling. I don't care whatever anybody else says. You have two people with different perspectives in the same room. It's hard enough with one person with a, with, a, with a different perspective in the room. But here you got two, and they often are in direct conflict with each other. So take a husband and a wife, and their, the, 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 their sin has affected the way they see everything. So let's take, for example, one of the main issues that I deal with in counseling is the issue of money and finances in a marriage. I'm sure you deal with that too. So in a conflict over money, the way they see money is really the heart of the conflict. It's not the money itself. Have you ever gotten stuck as a counselor trying to referee them financially? That's a bad deal. You're not Dave Ramsey, okay? (laughs) Dave Ramsey can help, although Dave Ramsey has never helped me, so I don't... 
I just don't like envelopes and cash. I'm like, just tell me how to do it with a credit card. <laughs> Sorry if that's anathema to you all. <laughs> but my point is, if you are just simply refereeing the spending of dollars, you're actually not doing deep biblical counseling, okay? Because the problem is their perception of money, which then affects their perception of each other, their perception of self, and ultimately derives from their misperception of God. So the husband may think that he sees money for what it is. He earned it. He knows its value. He knows how quickly money can be lost. And he is the responsible one who wants to save it. The wife thinks she knows money for what it is. She earned it. She knows its value. And she knows that it should be used to create a safe and comfortable situation for their family right now. So she is responsible in her mind because she uses money well, whereas he saves money. Okay? So my point to you is you have to address how sin might be corrupting their perceptions. I'll keep going with that example as we move through the outline. So what it means to have a corrupt perception also applies to specific things. I perceive others through personal interest and not through love. You can write this down or turn there if you'd like, but y'all know Philippians chapter two, verses three through five. Let me read it for you and listen to the perception language that's in here. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Did you catch, did you catch the perception language there? He said, in humility, count. Count, that means to consider, to account, to regard, to see others as more important than, than yourself. You know what that shows? That Paul knows that deep inside the human heart is the, the tendency to do the opposite. You naturally perceive others through the lens of your own interests, of what you want from them, of what you think should change about them. But when you come to Christ, this starts to reverse this. And that's why he says, have this mind among you. It's a, it, you could say, have this mindset, this frame of reference, this belief system. If you want to get all weird and complex. But my point to you is, see them from the same, see others from the same framework Jesus saw you. And that is that he wanted to care for your interests. He wanted to move in instead of simply hold you down. And friends, isn't it wonderful to read in that passage, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus? It's already yours. It's, it's something foreign from you given, given to you. That should, that should deeply encourage you. This mindset you have access to. You now have the ability to perceive others in a way different than merely your sinful, corrupted tendency. So... Back to our example for this, in relation to their conflict about money, how are the husband and the wife seeing each other? Okay, so I, I just gave you the basics of how they're seeing money. How does that affect the way they perceive each other? Well, the husband will see his wife through his own beliefs and values about money. He will see her as, what would you guess? Yeah, he would see her as a, as a wasteful spender. He'll see her as spoiled and materialistic. He'll see her as short-sighted and unwise, not nearly as wise as him, of course. That's how he'll see her, given what he, what he perceives about money and about a number of other factors. So how will the wife see the husband? How, how might her sort of uh, uh, cravings and understandings shade her perspective of him. Well, the wife will see her husband through her own beliefs and values about money. She'll see him as, what? What do you think? Yep, I'm hearing, I'm hearing accurate words here. Sort of tight-fisted, 
and selfish maybe. She'll see him maybe as paranoid about the future, as not dialed in to the present needs of the family, as not, as, as sort of maybe even self-righteously avoiding uh, pleasure just to feel holy about himself. There's a number of things that can go into this. By the way, this is a purely theoretical example. So our perception of others is affected by our sin. Next point, our perception of self is corrupted by sin. I perceive myself through pride, not humility. Write this down. If you want to turn there, you can. Romans 12, verse 3. As I read this, listen to the language again of perception and specifically about self. Romans 12, verse 3 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Friends, isn't that amazing? This chapter where Paul is about to launch into the actions of Christian community, love being genuine, not taking vengeance, being generous to those who are in need. He's, a, he's gonna get to action, but he starts with, don't perceive yourself as more important than you ought. Instead, think soberly. So Paul was concerned that they regard themselves accurately. That they regard themselves not with pride, okay? Pride doesn't mean you think you're the most amazing person in the world. Pride means that your concerns are the center of your perspective that that what I get that what I want that 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 um, that my concerns rule here and sin this is the main way sin warps our perception of self we want to be independent of God not sub submitted to him and more important than other people but Paul says, rather than this, think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith. And if you were to read the rest of that in context, what he's basically saying is, you are just a part of a larger body of a whole. And the other parts of that body are as necessary as you. Think of yourself that way. Think of yourself, this, this might surprise some of you to hear, okay? Think of yourself as no more important or less important than anybody else. Isn't that interesting? It's an interesting definition of humility, I think, squares with what Paul's saying here. Don't think of yourself as more important. Don't think of yourself as less important because both thinking of yourself as more and less is based on a scale of measurement that is not God's. It's some scale of like how much money you earn, how useful you are apparently at church, how important you are in a social community. It's some other scale that you're measuring by and saying, hey, I'm more or I'm less important. And God says the problem is the scale itself. God made you, God gifted you. God is the one who determines the measure of grace that's upon you. So I perceive myself through pride, not humility. And as we apply it to this husband and wife, we ask the question, in relation to their conflict about money, how are this husband and wife seeing themselves? The husband will probably see himself as the responsible one, the guardian of the family's legacy. He believes that his perspective is the reliable one. He sees and is ready for all the contingencies that can occur that would thrust a family into poverty, and his wife isn't aware of that. So he trusts his own perspective exclusively with no need for input from hers. That's how he sees himself. How might the wife see herself? Well, maybe she thinks she's the practical one, the realist who knows the needs of the family and is dialed in in a caring and loving way. She'll see herself as generous, as thoughtful, as confident enough to act in the present, as not paranoid like her husband. And then, and then she also is able to dismiss her husband's concerns, writing him off as crazy. That's, that's pride. That's how we see ourselves in sinful corruption. But not only that, and worst of all, I perceive, next point, I perceive God through distrust, not reverent belonging. 
Write this down, please. 1 John 4. If you want to turn there, you can. 1 John 4, 16 and 18. Just for time, I'm just going to go 16 straight to 18. Let me read it for you. And again, pay attention to the language of perception. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. What's John saying here? He's saying that when we come to know and believe the love that God has for us, we see him differently, don't we? We see him differently. We don't see him like Adam and Eve did in the garden anymore. And here he comes. Hide! We hear him coming and we think, I belong to him? His, his love is that powerful that I'm received by him? Is, 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 this, is this real? It is real. If Jesus is who he says he is, it's real. And that's what John means by perfect love casts out fear. The mistrust or the distrust that we have in God as we come to know him through faith in Jesus Christ begins to melt away at this sinful corruption that is native to all of our hearts. Your native tendency, friends, is to distrust God. And that distrust might be explicit in your mind like maybe something bad happened to you or maybe not good things happened to you or things that are good happened to other people but didn't happen to you and it's an explicit distrust in God or maybe it's a more subtle distrust in the form of you just he's not really relevant to your life and you go about your business and you make your own way and you try to just establish your own concerns and, and God is just the furthest thought from your mind. That's a form of distrust because you're not having to submit in trust for him to provide for you. You're trying to provide for yourself. But perfect love casts this out. So, you know, taking this example again. In relation to their conflict about money, how is this husband and wife, how are they now seeing God? Sin, sin, sin makes us unconscious of God. It, it veils us from the immediate sense that he's in this room, that he's walking with me each moment, that he has every minute of my life meticulously planned with loving wisdom. And so the husband thinks he has to secure his future through his own vigilance over finances. His wife may have a good point that maybe he is paranoid. But it's not just because there's something knocked loose in his brain. It's, it's that it's been a while since he's actually gone face to face with God and had to talk to him as a son does his father. A son who's a child and can't earn a thing for himself talking to a father who has limitless resources. He thinks that through his own responsible actions now, he can, reserve his, he can preserve his legacy as success. God's provision as heavenly father is not something he's interested in relying on. That's a misperception of God. And the wife, maybe in her part, thinks she can no longer live deprived of what she ought to be able to enjoy. She can't stand this husband who's making all these tight-fisted decisions. And she just wants to live without the restrictions in lifestyle that, that, seem, that other people don't seem to have. God's provision in Christ is not what she thinks of as a good life. She thinks of as a good life experiencing certain things right now. That's, that's a misperception of God. It's a misperception of how he provides. So folks, just as I, I've camped on this main point at the beginning for a reason because I think there's a lot of counseling usefulness here. It's easy, it's relatively easy to get people to see external action sins it's, it's, it's relatively difficult to get them to see that their perceptions are, are sinfully corrupted, that they're not seeing the world correctly. And if I'm working with that husband and wife, 
Hopefully you're exploring their perspective of each other enough to be able to take biblical categories and say, hey, do you see that the way you're perceiving your wife, there's some accuracy there, but do you see how, you, how your perspective, your sin actually twists it into something that God doesn't agree with? And, and same thing with wife to husband. So we perceive the world wrongly, but not only that, major point two, I am not like God in the way I act in the world, okay? My sin is expressed in the way I relate to everything. So since the subpoints of this basically flow from the subpoints of my previous point, I'm gonna unpack them all together. We're gonna unpack them sort of in an express way. And I, I just wanna draw attention to this specific concept I'm adding with this point. And that is, my sin is externally expressed in the way I, if you're an underliner, in the way I relate to the world. Because I want us to think even of the external action of sin as a form of relating. You were, you were made to relate. The actions that you take in the world represent, were made to represent God. Scripture talks about the heart as the private source of sin but a sinful heart also expresses itself externally into the world in the way it relates to everything else. And that's why in our Philippians passage, in Philippians 2, it's not just about regarding others as more important than yourselves, but then it goes on to warn against grumbling and disputing. Okay, That's the external way of relating that's harmful to people. The Romans passage in 12 goes on to warn against social partiality and personal vengeance. So, 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 so not thinking soberly about yourself means that you're going to be offended by everything and you're going to take it out on people. You're going to externally be destructive in the way you relate. And then our First John 4 passage also warns against what a mistrust in God then leads to in terms of practicing unrighteousness and loving the world. So... The, the internal expresses itself externally. This is a basic of biblical counseling. But, I, but what I want to show you is that, that the Bible is never, even when it lists the, ex, the particular external expressions, they're never just generic lists of external sins. They are highly relational in their description. God made man in his image to rule the world on his behalf. We know this from Genesis 1 and 2 and countless other places. So, so Old Testament scholars will tell you that, that an image was just a physical sign, a physical representation of the presence of a king, okay? So if you had your little kingdom and you wanted to, everyone to know where the borders of that kingdom is, you would put a statue of yourself at the four corners of your kingdom. And that was a sign that, hey, as soon as you cross this border, guess, who's, guess whose rule you're coming under? Mine. That statue is a sign that, that my presence, my authority is here. So guess what? You're all little statues. You're all little images of God. You are the physical image of an unseen God in a physical world. And God designed you to interact with his world, with other people, with him, to interact in ways that show his rule that show his authority, that show this is how we do things around here. We do it our king's way. We do it God's way. So what sin does is it, it twists that. It turns that on his head. Instead of, instead of imaging God's character, displaying his authority in the way you interact with the world and relate to the world, you actually show, yeah, his rule isn't here. His rule means nothing here. We do it our own way here. That's what sin does. So I'm trying, to make, I'm trying to show you the glory of seeing sin relationally, especially in your counseling ministry. You can help people understand why is it wrong to swear at your wife? Why is it wrong to go off and kick your dog in anger? It's not because of any intrinsic value in the dog, though dogs are valuable. We just got a dog recently, and oh my goodness, I've entered the world of dog people, okay? <laughs> but it's because that action does not convey the character of the God who rules in that space. 
So this is a vital point to recognize for our self-perception as sinners. The sin we do externally is a corruption of how we're supposed to relate. So, to explain this a little bit further, let me give you another counseling tool, okay, under this main point that, that I at least have found helpful. Um, it's, it's in the form of a spectrum, okay? I think sin, I think we can talk about sin from a variety of different spectrums, okay? So just to be clear, I'm, the spectrum I'm about to give is not a spectrum of the, the sinfulness of sin or the iniquity, the level of iniquity, okay? Because in one sense, all sin keeps us out of heaven. All sin is, is deadly serious before the Lord. But I want to give you a spectrum of obviousness. Obviousness. I do think we want to help. As counselors, we have to be sensitive to the fact that there are some external sins that are more obvious and less obvious. Okay? So here's a metaphor to help us understand the spectrum. Sandpaper. Okay, any home crafters in here use sandpaper? Any, any contractors, you know what sandpaper is. It comes in coarse and in fine, okay? Coarse grain sandpaper means that the grains are large and sharp. It would pull the skin off your finger if you ran it across it enough. That's a really gross thing, but it also helps you understand that there are certain sins that nobody's going to debate. That's huge, that's big, that's ugly, that's harmful, okay? These are the sins that are most obviously sinful. They're coarse, they're body, they're explicit. They're the kinds of sins that bad people do, but good people would never do. You know I'm being facetious there, right? Fine grain sandpaper means that the grains are very small. They're even seemingly smooth when you run your finger across it. You could do that all day, and you know, you'd have a little irritation, but it wouldn't be that big of a deal. Sins that are not that offensive in the moment. But, but folks, no one buys sandpaper for the smoothness, right? You, you don't use sandpaper in the shower, okay? It'd be a very bad place to use it. All sandpaper grates and damages. These are the sins that are less obvious. They are the fine, subtle sins, even maintaining a sense of dignity about them. Okay, so let me give you an example to, to, to just show you this spectrum. You can take the same type of sin, let's take anger, and there are coarse expressions of it, and there are fine expressions of it. Coarse expression would be something like obvious that none of us in here would ever do like physically attack someone, berate them with shouted insults, okay? Maybe going on a rampage and breaking things in the room. These are highly obvious sins. They're easy to identify. And for many of us, here's the danger, for many of us, they're easy to avoid. But anger has tons of fine expressions. The cold-cutting sarcasm about how disappointing somebody else is to you. An impulsive text that you know you shouldn't send, but you hit send anyway. An icy silence that makes another person have to work really, really hard if they're gonna get back on your good side. These are the less obvious sins, and they're more difficult to identify, and, and they're the hardest to avoid. So let me ask you, if we're thinking about the self-perception of ourselves as sinners, which one of those types of sin is more dangerous? We're talking from the angle of self-perception, seeing yourself as a sinner, which one's more dangerous? It's the finer sins, isn't it? It's the finer sins. And folks, I hope, I hope this metaphor, I hope that spectrum is at least helpful in counseling because I have found that oftentimes people, people will come in because a coarse sin has emerged in their life and they're alarmed at themselves, but then as you actually talk to them, they think, so just help me with this. And they don't realize that those coarse sins are just the accumulation of tons of fine sins. And they don't like 
seeing that about themselves. Fine sins tend to fly under the radar of our self-perception, okay? This goes for each of these areas that we talked about. We will sin in coarse and in fine ways, ways that are obvious and ways that are not. I could go into this, but I also want to be sensitive to our time. Let me just end this point by saying that th- this important point. I think Christian maturity involves a growing awareness of the fine sins in our lives. I'm going to add more to that phrase in just a second, but let me let that first part sink in. Christian maturity involves growing in our awareness of the fine sins in our lives. But can I complete that? And this is going to transition us to the third point. From the safety of our righteous standing in Christ. Christian maturity involves growing in our awareness of the fine sins of our, in our lives from the safety of our righteous standing in Christ. Folks, it would be torture and agony and condemnation to simply become more aware of the fine sins in our lives if we were not standing safely behind the force field of Jesus' righteousness covering us. And so that's really my third point. I'm not going to get into it because I don't want to steal the thunder from anybody coming after me who's talking about, I think Keith is talking about our union with Christ. We're going to be talking about sanctification and glorification. But, but I, do, I don't want to leave a talk on you being a sinner without at least mentioning what we have in our third point there, that I need Jesus to make me like God as I ought to be. So folks, your self-identification as a sinner should always lead you to think about Jesus. And how you think about Jesus in relation to your sin is very simple. I need him. I need him. The Holy Spirit's ministry of conviction is to make it clear to you every moment of the day, I need Jesus Christ. He testifies of Jesus Christ because he both convicts you and then he what? Another C word. He comforts you. How does he comfort you? By reminding you and assuring you that you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. So you're safe to recognize the finer points of your sin. So friends, that last heading, living with a healthy awareness of my sin. That's just my attempt to give you something a little bit more practicable with people in counseling. I've just, I've just found that these are, these are skills or characteristics or verbs or actions that the Bible mentions that counter and help us uh, uh, live out rightly a healthy perspective of our own sinfulness. And the first one is discernment. Can I give you a scripture here? Hebrews 5.14. Hebrews 5.14. Let me read it for you. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. My point here, friends, is this. You don't always know the difference between what's sinful and not sinful in a given situation. You don't. God puts you in situations frequently or puts you in arguments with your spouse frequently or puts you in a number of scenarios with your friendships, with relationships at church where it's not exactly clear what is righteous and what is unrighteous. This word discernment and then, and then as Hebrews talks about it, the fact that is a practiced, it's an established skill over time means that you can either be better or worse at distinguishing between what's pleasing or displeasing to God in a given situation. And how do you get better? Well, the context of Hebrews 5, when you go and read it, the context of Hebrews 5 is you gotta, you, you gotta be feasting on the word constantly. You gotta be eating the word. You gotta be living on a steady diet of God's perspective because the more of God's perspective gets strengthened in your framework, 
the more your perspective matches his. And then, you, and then from that perspective, like glasses, you can look out at the, at the sort of grayish situation or out there and you can tell better the difference between what is pleasing and what is displeasing to God in this situation. That's what discernment is. It's a skill that has to be developed, okay? So, so, so you know what this means, guys? We should be patient with our counselees, okay? Sometimes something that's super duper obvious to you is not super duper obvious to them. Thank God that it's obvious to you, okay? But then nurture them, build them up. Put them on a process of understanding the word, understanding where their perspective is wrong, as, and, and it will be developed in them. If the spirit's in them, it will be developed. It's a muscle of discernment, if you will. Okay, second thing is obedience. You guys know well the put off, put on. And you know well uh, Colossians 3, where we, would, where we frequently go to in our counseling for this. Okay, but obedience is another element. It's another action point where we rightly live out our status, our self-awareness of sin, because the put off implies that I know that there's something inside me that has to constantly, I have to constantly disrobe from. You guys know well that the put off, put on is a, is a, is a clothing metaphor. I'm, I'm constantly, I wake up in the morning and my old jersey, my old soldier uniform of the old army I was once a part of, my old team, it's on me again. I, I, gotta, I, gotta, I gotta pull that off and I gotta, and I gotta put on, I gotta, I gotta robe up on the, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, my, my new team, if you will. Um, Colossians 3, again, you know the put off, put on is primarily there. I just wanna point out that verses one through three of Colossians 3 actually starts out with perception language, okay? So if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You know the next phrase? Set your minds on things that are above and not on things below. So another way of saying that is, remember your earthly perspective of the concerns of your weekly schedule is only one perspective. Jump out of that and see it from this eternal perspective of God's heavenly kingdom concerns. And as you do that, you will then be able to express yourself differently in the way you relate to the world you'll put off that garbage and you'll put on things that make no sense to someone who doesn't have that eternal perspective. Why would you be patient with someone when you can blast them and get exactly what you want? And then finally, failing well. We would just describe this as repentance. I, I commend to you 1 John 1, 8 through 10, not just 9. You guys know 1 John 1, 9? Fantastic verse, tattoo it on your inner arm, okay? You don't, you don't have to, you should actually put it in your mind, primarily. Although if you do that, that's cool too, I don't, I'm not condemning tattoos here. Um, especially in SoCal. Yeah. But you know, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know the verses that precede it, verse eight and verse 10, repeat the exact, repeat the same concept. And that, that concept is, if you say you have no sin, the truth is not in you, you're a liar. And then again, in verse 10, it repeats it. If you say you have no sin, why on earth would he sandwich that beautiful verse nine between those two kind of ugly concepts of us claiming that we don't have sin? It's because John was so aware of our tendency to not agree with God about our own sinfulness. Many of you have preached and taught and counseled enough of, of John 1, 9 to know that confess there is homo logeo, same word. It means to say the same thing as God does about sin. So if that's what confession is, saying you don't have sin is the exact opposite, right? It's not really agreeing with God about how serious your sin is. So confession is full agreement with God. And it leads to, as we're gonna get in these later sessions, I won't, again, I'm not stealing thunder, but there's a reason that 1 John uh, 2, verses one and two directly precedes those verses. 
because it draws our attention to Jesus as the propitiation for our sin, who is able, who is able to, to forgive us when we sin. It's, it's really just quite remarkable. So it's not just agreeing with God about the seriousness of your sin. It's that second subpoint I have there that it's personally identifying with Jesus Christ. I really do believe that Jesus is who he says he is to me, a sinner. So we'll close with that, folks. Friends, we're sinners. It's not a threatening thing to believe that about yourself. It's a necessary thing to believe that about yourself. If you don't believe that about yourself, you're gonna be a monster. You're, gonna, you're going to treat other people in ways that are not righteous. But folks, as we're gonna hear about in the rest of this conference, we can only see ourselves as sinners from the safety of Jesus Christ's righteousness. So let me pray and we can close. Father, I pray that we would learn to take on your perspective of us in its full breadth as represented in the word. And so Lord, I just pray right now that we who are sinners would, would eagerly seek mercy from you. That Father, if there's anyone burdened here by these reminders that they don't perceive the world rightly and they don't act in the world rightly, Lord, I pray that you would comfort them with the gospel and free them from the power of sin's dominance over their lives. Lord, help us be bold. You know, in counseling and in what we do, this is just the front lines where a lot of people outside the church and outside the faith, Lord, are really offended when we talk about sin. But I pray that we wouldn't shy away from that, Lord, because that's really a part of the pathway to life. It's part of the pathway to salvation from our sin. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us courage and boldness and faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Copyright 2019, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.